We continue our series in Matthew's Gospel and turn together to the 8th chapter of Matthew and we begin reading together at verse 28. I'm very glad that in the providence of God, uh, we determined to continue singing our great Easter hymns the second Sunday after Easter. You know, some churches actually sing Easter hymns for seven Sundays beginning with Easter. Uh, We shouldn't simply sing these things once a year, that's for sure. And as we are all praying for our brother, Vince Strawbridge Jr., what a wonderful thing to sing these hymns on this day. But now we come to Matthew chapter 8, beginning with verse 28. Let's briefly pray. Our Father, as we come to this wondrous text, we ask that the Holy Spirit will illumine its page, enliven our minds and hearts and affections, so that we may see something of the wonder and greatness of the sovereign authority and power of Jesus. Yes, indeed, over death and evil and the devil. And we praise you for our risen Christ who in his regnant glory, even now, sends his Holy Spirit and enables us to understand this text and to apply it to our lives. Father, there may be those who are here today who are strangers to grace, who do not know you at all, and how we do pray that you would draw them to the Savior and save them as you have us from our awful sins. We praise and thank you for reorienting our thinking and affections by worship, Lord's Day after Lord's Day and ask that you will continue to do so until you call us home, or until Jesus comes again. For it is in the name of Christ our Lord that we pray. Amen. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 28 and following. This is the word of God. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region." We have been looking at Matthew's Gospel, and especially in the Sermon on the Mount, saw the authority of Jesus' teaching. As we have been looking at the 8th chapter of Matthew, we have seen also the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ expressed through his miracles. We saw, as he cleansed the leper, his authority over death and over the grave, for to cleanse a leper was the equivalent to raising the dead. We have seen these various healing miracles and his authority, and we saw his authority over nature when last time we saw Jesus calming the storm and the wonderful things that surrounded that event. But also we see in the passage before us today that Jesus is completely authoritative over the supernatural. 
And my friend, that must be. If the Redeemer of the fallen world is to come and save us from our sins, then he must have power over the evil one. 1 John 3.8 tells us, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now I think uh, we can fall into a trap when we come to a passage such as this by focusing our attention upon the demons, and I think that would be completely wrong. Yet a few words, since demons form the context of this great miracle, a few words about demons and about how we are to view these things I think is appropriate as we begin our look at the text. Demons are real. This is not a metaphor. This is an historical event that actually happened as Jesus Christ cast out these demons. They recognize Jesus. They inhabit bodies. They are filled with hatred, filled with anger, and they are filled with evil. And, of course, Jesus is completely authoritative over them, as we shall see. Such passages as this do not justify what is generally called a deliverance ministry in some circles today. Men who go around and do nothing but, as they suppose, casting out demons, being able to recognize demons behind this event or that event or in this person or that person. As a matter of fact, the demons don't have to obey you at all. It's true that the Lord Jesus gave to his disciples and to his apostles the power to cast out demons. It is true that the Lord has answered the prayers of his church to cast out demons, but the demons, the demons don't have to obey you and me at all, and that is not that ministry to which the Lord has called the church today. You remember in Acts chapter 19, the sons of Sceva uh, tried to cast out demons in the name of Jesus whom Paul preached, and the demons responded, you I know, and Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And uh, through the power of the demons, the man was, uh, uh, the, the, the demon-possessed man came upon the sons of Sceva and tore off their clothes and they went out wounded. I don't think it's our, our call to do that in the church today. Our call in the church today is to worship the Lord and preach his gospel. When will we get that? Not all of these other things. Our call is very simple. It is word and sacrament to preach the gospel and to pray for the lost and take the gospel to sinner and saint. And it's the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. And if the Lord chooses to use that to cast out demons, then that is in sovereign prerogative so to do. You know, when we read in Colossians 2, 14 and 15 that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in his cross, we recognize that the Lord in his cross brought about this special conquering of the demonic realm through his shed blood on the cross. And yet, even though that's the case, we Christians still do battle with the demonic. We still do. Even though the victory is ours through the cross of Christ, we still battle the demonic. How? Not by special deliverance ministries, once again. But Ephesians 6 tells us how. By putting on the whole armor of God. By taking the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, the breastplate of righteousness, and so forth. By, by, by conquering in the name of Christ through our daily Christian living, in the complete armor of God. Now, I think it's very obvious that as we see the ministry of Jesus, that there is a heightened activity of the demonic realm when Jesus comes. In his incarnation, through his ministry, and of course in the cross, this heightened involvement of the demonic. And the reason for that, of course, is because the Lord Jesus Christ desires to show that in his coming... The kingdom of God has arrived, and we will say something more of that as well. So these are some things to say about the demonic realm and uh, their reality, uh, even in Jesus' day and in ours. Now, Jesus comes to this predominantly Gentile area. If you're wondering why there are pigs 
in a predominantly Jewish gospel. That's why the Decapolis was a predominantly Gentile area. And uh, he comes to the country of the Gadarenes. And we see, first of all, that there are two men possessed by demons. Two men possessed by demons. And when he came to the other side, the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him. Now, I find that to be remarkable. As I was thinking upon this text, I was actually deeply moved by considering this. Why, you say? Well, because it's men who are possessed by demons. Not animals. Men. Men created in the image of God. These are God's image bearers who should bring glory to the Almighty. And here are these men that are possessed by demons. They live among the tombs, among the dead. How fallen that man can be possessed by demons. Have you ever stopped to consider it? How fallen we are that men can be possessed by devils. They are enslaved. They are in complete darkness as they are possessed by these demons. But you know, even apart from demon possession, we are, apart from Christ, enslaved to sin and to the devil. In John chapter 8, Jesus speaks to the Pharisees and he says to them, forthrightly, you are of your father, the devil. You say, well, pastor, that's the Pharisees, but that's not true of the rest of us. Oh, yes, it is. 1 John chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Listen, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Calvin put it this way, Though we are not tormented by the devil, yet he holds us slaves till the Son of God delivers us from his tyranny. Naked, torn, and disfigured, we wander about till he restores us to soundness of mind. And he does that when he converts our souls through the gospel. These men are possessed by demons. They are enslaved by sin. But we're all enslaved by sin, apart from Jesus Christ. Did you notice the fierce character of these men? We're told in verse 28 that they were coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. People avoided the road. They didn't even go that way out of fear for these men who were possessed by demons. You know, sin, in whatever form, demon possession or whatever it may be, sin always dehumanizes. We think that we're more human being true to ourselves when we live lives our way. But that's wrong. Sin thoroughly dehumanizes. Let me tell you, people of God, the Scriptures teach in no uncertain terms that you and I, all of us here, are made for His glory. And when we walk our own way and disregard his glory, then that sin dehumanizes and enslaves. Well, then to sum up this point, we have two men bound by demons, but we are all apart from Christ bound in sin and lost in darkness. And I think it's true that very few people and very few preachers really believe the doctrine of the fall of man and of original sin and all of the consequent misery that's come into the world because of the fall of man. My friend... That means that if you come to Christ, 
If you come to faith in Christ, it is because he came to you. We are in such bondage. We are every bit as much apart from Christ in bondage as was this demon-possessed man or these two men here in Matthew. We are enslaved to sin. Our wills are bound. Our affections are bound in sin. And if you come to faith in Christ, it is because Christ in sovereign free grace comes to you. How else are you freed from bondage? And I'm thankful for it. For I would be lost and undone forever were it not for His grace that condescended to save me from my sin. The second thing we see in this passage is that the demons recognize Jesus. Look at verse 29. And behold, they cried out. These are the demons crying out. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? The demons know who Jesus is. They recognize him as the Son of God. This is an ontological term. They know that he's the second person of the Trinity. They know that he is God who has become flesh. They know that this is the eternal, preexistent Son of God who has now become man and come into this world. They know that. They're absolutely right about this. And Matthew wants you and me to adopt their point of view, but with this difference, that you and I entrust ourselves to him who is the Son of God. James tells us that the devils believe and tremble. They have an intellectual knowledge of who he is, but their hearts are far from him. I think this is a remarkable thing, don't you? That these demons know who Jesus is, that they know he is the Son of God, and that they remain demons still. That's an awful thought. Somewhere D.A. Carson made the statement, to know Jesus yet hate him is demonic. That's a profound statement. To know Jesus, that is to say to know who he is, to have an intellectual knowledge that he's the son of God, to be able to confess, I know that he's the son of God, maybe recite your catechism and say, I know it's true, and yet have a heart that is far from Jesus, that's demonic. Well, they know why he's come, too. They don't know the full picture. They don't know the timetable. But in generalities, they know why he has come. Have you come to torment us before the time? They know that he's come to do away with the works of the devil, of which they are some. They know their ultimate fate. They know that they are doomed to judgment. When will this take place? Jude 6. And the angels who did not stay within their position of authority but left their proper dwelling he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Revelation 12.10, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The day is coming that these demons conquered by Christ and his cross and resurrection will be tormented forever and ever after the judgment. So they're afraid of Jesus, and they have every right to be. They're afraid of Jesus because they know who he is. He's the Son of God. They know that he has come to do away with the works of the devil. They know this. And they read his arrival as the beginning of the end of darkness, and they were right to read it like that. And in the response of the demons, we see the drama of the history of redemption and microcosm, how the Lord has from Genesis 3.15, promised that he will bring the seed of the woman, that he will conquer, that he will defeat the devil, 
that he will crush the head of the serpent, which he did in the cross and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bring us all the way ultimately to that culmination in the day of judgment when Philippians 2.10 says that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, which includes the demonic realm. Yes, they will bow their demonic knee before the infinite Son of God, the Savior of his people. Third thing we see in this text is the demon's request. Now look at this in verses 30 and 31. Now, a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. <clears throat> now, why did they do that? Why did they, pray? Why did they ask him, send us into the pigs? Well, they know that Jesus is going to cast them out. They know that. He's going to show compassion on these two men. So where will they go? Well, I used to think, and maybe there's something to this, that they thought, well, maybe the time of judgment is near. Better to be in the pigs than to be in hell. He won't cast us into other men. Let us go there. Uh, so they go into the pigs. I've subsequently come to think that there are another couple of reasons that are probably more, uh, more reasonable than that or perhaps um, more important than that. They want to go into the pigs because they want to cause havoc in God's creation. That's what demons do. That's what they want to do. They hate God. They hate his creation. They want to cause havoc. And in doing so, they want to raise the ire of the populace against Jesus because they're going to destroy the livelihood of these people in the Decapolis, in the land of the Gadarenes. So you ask yourself the question, why does Jesus permit it? I've asked myself that question this week. I think he permits it because he wants to demonstrate their destructive intent. Uh, that their purpose for man is not one bit different from the madness to which they drove the pigs. Now, what is true of the demonic possession is true of the demonic realm, is true of sin in our lives. It just is. That when we go our way, we are really going Satan's way, whose aim it is to destroy us. I wish that by the power of God this would get into our hearts this morning and perhaps into some, some rebellious heart today who he or she thinks, I can go my way and all is going to be well. It's not. Satan's desire is to destroy you, to destroy God's creation, to destroy God's image. He wants to obliterate the image of God. And so they go into these pigs and they drive them mad and over the cliff to drown into the water. Now, that's the nature of the evil one and of all evil, all evil, to drive mad, to destroy. Now, I don't know much about pigs. I had an experience with a sow when I was a boy. I was a city boy. I went to a farm and thought I could walk just anywhere. I was looking around, and I walked into a pigsty. The sow had just had piglets, viewed me as a threat. I mean corpulent hog, sow. And I barely stayed in front of that thing until I jumped over the fence. And thinking I was safe, there was a bull on the other side. <laughs> I got out of there, too. But just imagine a herd of pigs, all these pigs, a couple of thousand, I think we're told in Mark's Gospel, if I recall. I mean, this is, this is massive. They're driven mad. I had an experience with one 
Defensive salve. I wouldn't have wanted to be in the way of these things, would you? But you know, I read a minister years ago who spoke of someone he had seen who uh, would drop feed and lead the pigs to the slaughter. Very easy to get them to the slaughter. All he had to do was drop the feed, and they followed him right into the slaughterhouse. And that's what the evil one does to man. Well, we have the demon's request, but more importantly, let's see Jesus' sovereign authority over the supernatural, and we see it in verse 32. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. It's an imperative. Go. That's all he did. That's all he said. Just go. Satan's purpose is to destroy Christ's purpose is to restore. Jesus' success must have surprised the onlookers. I mean, after all, demons are powerful figures. If I read correctly Daniel 10.13, I'm reading about a demon uh, who was uh, called the Prince of Persia, who hindered an angel that was bringing a message to Daniel so that the Lord had to send the archangel Michael in order to to open the way and let the message come through. Demons are powerful. Not only that, the rabbis used incantations and talismans and all kinds of magical formulas, really, superstition, in order to cast out demons, usually failing. Alfred Edersheim, at the back of his classic work, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, has a lengthy essay in which he details how the rabbis attempted to cast out demons. It's a very sad thing indeed their failures, all of their superstition. Well, Jesus doesn't have to do that. Uh, no, no incantations, no magical talismans, no. All he does is say, go. And they go, because he's the Son of God, and he has authority. And he says, go, they go. That's what they do. They obey. They went into the pigs. Now, again, you can see that this is akin to resurrection, can't you? These men are spiritually dead, and they also are living in the tombs. They are living among the dead. They are bound by death. And every miracle of Jesus that we see in the Gospels, every one of them is an overcoming of death that has come into the world because of the fall of man. It is an exercise of resurrection power before the resurrection. It is an indication of what the resurrection power will bring about in the new heavens and the new earth. You know, later in Matthew 17, we will see the disciples are stymied. They want to cast out a demon, and they just can't do it. Jesus is never stymied. In Mark 1.25, he says to a demon, be silent and come out of him. And he did it. In Mark 5.8, he said, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he did it. In Mark 9.25, he said, you dumb and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And he did it. That's Jesus. He's absolutely authoritative over death, absolutely authoritative to heal. He is absolutely authoritative to calm the sea. He is absolutely authoritative as well over the supernatural, completely authoritative over all things, including your life and mine. And thank God he's sovereign to save. That he can effectually call those for whom he shed his blood. That he can say, I died for you, you come to me, and you come. Because he is sovereign to save just as he was sovereign to heal these demoniacs of this terrible, terrible, awful, awful possession. But I think the next point to me is the sad point in the sermon, the fifth point, 
the response of the townspeople. We read it in verses 33 and 34. Look at it. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him. They begged him to leave their region. This is sad, sad, sad. This is tragic. Why did they so respond? Why did they beg Jesus to leave? Well, undoubtedly, this was a great blow to their economy. Uh, They were concerned about loss of property. A.T. Robertson, in his word pictures of the New Testament, says they cared more for hogs than for human souls, as often happens today. I think all of that's true. I think there's a deeper reason. The real reason, the deep reason that they asked Jesus, begged him to leave their region, is because of Jesus' disturbing presence. There's just something about Jesus, and they want him to go. I mean, this is awesome authority. This is wondrous power. They don't want Jesus anywhere near. To put it in other other words, it's the holiness of Jesus, the complete and utter sinlessness and holiness of Jesus that is seen in his authority over evil, over the demonic. And they would rather have evil and the demonic than they would Jesus. Holiness attracts those God is calling to himself, and it repels those who will just feel better when Jesus is out of mind. That, by the way, is why we have all these Jesuses out there in the church today that really aren't the Jesus of the Bible. They're fine with having a Jesus as long as that Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible, that's another thing. Jesus was in the way of their life's choices. The demons are more respected by them than the Lord. And today as well, men would rather have the devil in his works than Jesus. That's how fallen and sinful we are. How should they have responded? They should have come and they should have bowed down before him and worshipped him. They should have said, you are the Son of God. You are indeed what the demons confessed you to be. You are the Messiah that we hear the Jews talking about. They should have said, oh, how wonderful that you freed these two, these two men that were so bound in death and darkness. And you know, they're not the only ones here. This person is bound. Will you free him? This, this girl is bound. Will you free her? Oh, will you, will you save us all? We need saving. That's what they should have done. That's how they should have responded. Come, free us, save us. But they preferred their pigs to Jesus. For Jesus, the salvation of these two men is more important than the loss of pigs. But you say, didn't Jesus bring misery to their lives in order to reveal himself? I mean, after all, he's, uh, he's destroying their livelihood. Now, this is part of a larger subject. Why is there misery in this world? How does it relate to the fall of man? Just let me say this. The demons know that there is an appointed time for their punishment. Until then, the Lord even uses the misery of this life to reveal himself to lost sinners. You count on it. But they preferred their pigs to Christ. That raises a question, doesn't it? What about you and me? Do we prefer our pigs to Christ? Is there someone here, you want your own way more than you want what Christ wants for you? What about your values? Do you prefer Christ above all? What do you prefer over Christ? What relationship? What sin? What do we prefer over Christ? How dark, how in need of saving we are. 
how in need of redemption you and I are, that we will prefer anything in this world over Christ. And whatever it is, in the end, it's just a pig in comparison. Well, we've seen two men demon-possessed and in bondage. We've seen the demons recognize Jesus. We've seen the demons request. We've seen Jesus' sovereign authority over the supernatural. And we've seen the response of the townspeople. But I want us to see one more thing, a sixth thing. That Jesus has come to deliver us from the kingdom of darkness. You see, Jesus saw his exorcisms as a sign that the kingdom of God was breaking into human experience. So he says in Luke eleven twenty, If I cast out demons by the finger of God, you know that the kingdom has come upon you. Jesus said, when I cast out a demon, this is a sign and evidence that the kingdom of God has broken into human history in my person and through my work. The eschatological dawn of the kingdom of God has come because I am here, Jesus is saying. Salvation in Christ means, then, for us, a transference from one kingdom to another. Understand that you are either in one kingdom or the other kingdom. You are in Satan's kingdom or God's kingdom, the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the demonic or the kingdom of the angelic. Turn, if you will, to Colossians, the first chapter, and let's read together a few verses Uh, that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, Colossians chapter 1. Now this, of course, is that same book in which he spoke of Jesus Christ conquering the demonic realm through the cross. Notice what he says in chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, Colossians 1. Colossians 1.11, May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now look at verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There's a deliverance. There's a transference. From the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light for the people of God. Now that takes us back to the focus of our passage. The focus of our passage is not on the demons. That would be all wrong. Just as with the stilling of the water, the question becomes, Who is this that can calm the wind and control the sea? What manner of man is this that can do such a thing? So here the question is, who is this? What manner of man is this that can cast demons out of men? What manner of man is this that can transfer us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of his own dear son? Well, the whole ministry of Jesus, from one perspective, is an exorcism of the devil. Again, Luke 10, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. John 12, he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. How? When? He goes on to say, and when I am lifted up from earth, will draw people to myself. He conquered the devil in the cross. 
1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. It's simply true that from one perspective, the entire ministry of Jesus is an exorcism of the devil, a casting out of the prince of darkness. Now, the Old Testament knew of one and only one exorcist. You remember who that was? It was David, wasn't it? We read about it in 1 Samuel 16. And whenever the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hands. So Saul was refreshed and well, and the evil spirit departed from him. Now following him, in Jewish tradition, Solomon was considered to be the expert exorcist. And the rabbis wrote a great deal about this. So here's Jesus now. There was David. There was Solomon. Now here's Jesus, the son of David, casting out demons. What did that say to everyone? It said, here is the Messiah that was promised. Here is the Son of God who has come. The kingdom of heaven has arrived. Salvation has dawned upon darkened sinners like us. And folks, there's no limits to what he can do. No limits to his power. Not just Jews, but in the Decapolis, Gentiles as well are healed by Jesus from demon possession. Jesus can go anywhere at any time, can do anything, can save any sinner, whoever he may be, no matter how dark your sins are. He can save even Gentiles in the Decapolis. He can save even demon-possessed men. He can save to the uttermost all who come to God through him. He went to the cross and he bound the strong man. And Jesus can free men and women from the possession of demons so that the demons are dispossessed. Jesus can take you from the tombs. He can raise you to spiritual life. He can sustain that spiritual life all the way to the grave and beyond for eternity. Jesus can turn sinners into saints. And I want to say to you this morning, As you contemplate the depths of your sin, it doesn't matter how deep your sin is. It doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter how guilty you are before God. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's own Son, is so powerful that it cleanses from all sin. Jesus can turn sinners into saints. All he need do is say, go, and the demons go. And so may the Lord who said go send now his word to possess our hearts. Amen.